This episode of Bibliophiles is brought to you by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. For more information, go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. This episode kicks off a new Bibliophile series. Inspired by our recent discussion of Honey for a Child's Heart, every so often the Center for Lit crew will read books about reading and then respond to them. In this episode, we are talking about G.K. Chesterton's essay, A Defense of Penny Dreadfuls. Because it's so short, we thought we would equip you to participate in the discussion by including the full text in the episode. So we will begin with Adam's reading of A Defense of Penny Dreadfuls, but be sure to stick around to the end for our regular Bibliophiles discussion about what this essay means and why it's relevant to us today. A Defense of Penny Dreadfuls by G.K. Chesterton One of the strangest examples of the degree to which ordinary life is undervalued is the example of popular literature, the vast mass of which we contentedly describe as vulgar, The boy's novelette may be ignorant in a literary sense, which is only like saying that modern novel is ignorant in the chemical sense, or the economic sense, or the astronomical sense, but it is not vulgar intrinsically. It is the actual center of a million flaming imaginations. In former centuries, the educated class ignored the ruck of vulgar literature. They ignored, and therefore did not, properly speaking, despise it. Simple ignorance and indifference does not inflate the character with pride. A man does not walk down the street giving a haughty twirl to his mustaches at the thought of his superiority to some variety of deep-sea fishes. The old scholars left the whole underworld of popular compositions in a similar darkness. Today, however, we have reversed this principle. We do despise vulgar compositions, and we do not ignore them. We are in some danger of becoming petty in our study of pettiness. There is a terrible Circean law in the background that if the soul stoops too ostentatiously to examine anything, it never gets up again. There is no class of vulgar publications about which there is, to my mind, more utterly ridiculous exaggeration and misconception than the current boys' literature of the lowest stratum. This class of composition has presumably always existed and must exist. It has no more claim to be good literature than the daily conversation of its readers to be fine oratory, or the lodging houses and tenements they inhabit to be sublime architecture. But people must have conversation, they must have houses, and they must have stories. The simple need for some kind of ideal world in which fictitious persons play an unhampered part 
is infinitely deeper and older than the rules of good art, and much more important. Every one of us in childhood has constructed such an invisible dramatis personae, but it never occurred to our nurses to correct the composition by careful comparison with Balzac. In the East, the professional storyteller goes from village to village with a small carpet, and I wish sincerely that anyone had the moral courage to spread that carpet and sit on it in Ludgate Circus. But it is not probable that all the tales of the carpet-bearer are little gems of original artistic workmanship. Literature and fiction are two entirely different things. Literature is a luxury. Fiction is a necessity. A work of art can hardly be too short, for its climax is its merit. A story can never be too long, for its conclusion is merely to be deplored, like the last halfpenny or the last pipelight. And so, while the increase of the artistic conscience tends in more ambitious works to brevity and impressionism, voluminous industry still marks the producer of the true romantic trash. There was no end to the ballads of Robin Hood. There is no end to the volumes about Dick Deadshot and the Avenging Nine. These two heroes are deliberately conceived as immortal. But instead of basing all discussion of the problem upon the common-sense recognition of this fact, that the youth of the lower orders always has had, and always must have, formless and endless romantic reading of some kind, and then going on to make provision for its wholesomeness, we begin, generally speaking, by fantastic abuse of this reading as a whole and indignant surprise that the errand boys under discussion do not read The Egoist and The Master Builder. It is the custom, particularly among magistrates, to attribute half the crimes of the metropolis to cheap novelettes. If some grimy urchin runs away with an apple, the magistrate shrewdly points out that the child's knowledge that apples appease hunger is traceable to some curious literary researches. The boys themselves, when penitent, frequently accuse the novelettes with great bitterness, which is only to be expected from young people possessed of no little native humor. If I had forged a will and could obtain sympathy by tracing the incident to the influence of Mr. George Moore's novels, I should find the greatest entertainment in the diversion. At any rate, it is firmly fixed in the minds of most people that gutter boys, unlike everybody else in the community, find their principal motives for conduct in printed books. Now, it is quite clear that this objection, the objection brought by the magistrates, has nothing to do with literary merit. Bad story writing is not a crime. Mr. Hall Kane walks the streets openly and cannot be put in prison for an anticlimax. The objection rests upon the theory that the tone of the mass of boys' novelettes is criminal and degraded, appealing to low cupidity and low cruelty. This is the magisterial theory, and this is rubbish. So far as I have seen them, in connection with the dirtiest bookstalls in the poorest districts, the facts are simply these. The whole bewildering mass of vulgar juvenile literature is concerned with adventures, rambling, disconnected, and endless. It does not express any passion of any sort, for there is no human character of any sort. It runs eternally in certain grooves of local and historical type. The medieval knight, the 18th century duelist, 
and the modern cowboy recur with the same stiff simplicity as the conventional human figures in an oriental pattern. I can quite as easily imagine a human being kindling wild appetites by the contemplation of his turkey carpet as by such dehumanized and naked narratives as this. Among these stories, there are a certain number which deal sympathetically with the adventures of robbers, outlaws, and pirates, which present in a dignified and romantic light thieves and murderers like Dick Turpin and Claude Duval. That is to say, they do precisely the same thing as Scott's Ivanhoe, Scott's Rob Roy, Scott's Lady of the Lake, Byron's Corsair, Wordsworth's Rob Roy's Grave, Stevenson's Macaire, Mr. Max Pemberton's Iron Pirate, and a thousand more works distributed systematically as prizes and Christmas presents. Nobody imagines that an admiration of Loxley in Ivanhoe will lead a boy to shoot Japanese arrows at the deer in Richmond Park. No one thinks that the incautious opening of Wordsworth at the poem on Rob Roy will set him up for life as a blackmailer. In the case of our own class, we recognize that this wildlife is contemplated with pleasure by the young, not because it is like their own life, but because it is different from it. It might at least cross our minds that for whatever other reason the errand boy reads the Red Revenge, it really is not because he's dripping with the gore of his own friends and relatives. In this matter, as in all such matters, we lose our bearings entirely by speaking of the lower classes when we mean humanity minus ourselves. This trivial romantic literature is not especially plebeian. It is simply human. The philanthropist can never forget classes and callings. He says with a modest swagger, I have invited 25 factory hands to tea. If he said, I have invited 25 chartered accountants to tea, everyone would see the humor of so simple a classification. But this is what we have done with this lumberland of foolish writing. We have probed, as if it were some monstrous new disease, what is in fact nothing but the foolish and valiant heart of man. Ordinary men will always be sentimentalists. For a sentimentalist is simply a man who has feelings and does not trouble to invent a new way of expressing them. These common and current publications have nothing essentially evil about them. They express the sanguine and heroic truisms on which civilization is built. For it is clear that unless civilization is built on truisms, it is not built at all. Clearly there could be no safety for a society in which the remark by the Chief Justice that murder was wrong was regarded as an original and dazzling epigram. If the authors and publishers of Dick Deadshot and such remarkable works were suddenly to make a raid upon the educated class, were to take down the names of every man, however distinguished, who was caught at a university extension lecture, were to confiscate all our novels and warn us all to correct our lives, we should be seriously annoyed. Yet they have far more right to do so than we, for they, with all their idiocy, are normal, and we are abnormal. It is the modern literature of the educated, not of the uneducated, which is avowedly and aggressively criminal. Books recommending profligacy and pessimism, at which the high-souled errand boy would shudder, lie upon all our drawing-room tables. If the dirtiest old owner 
of the dirtiest old bookstall in Whitechapel, dared to display works really recommending polygamy or suicide, his stock would be seized by the police. These things are our luxuries. And with a hypocrisy so ludicrous as to be almost unparalleled in history, we rate the gutter boys for their immorality at the very time that we are discussing with equivocal German professors whether morality is valid at all. At the very instant that we curse the penny dreadful for encouraging thefts upon property, we canvass the proposition that all property is theft. At the very instant we accuse it, quite unjustly, of lubricity and indecency, we are cheerfully reading philosophies which glory in lubricity and indecency. At the very instant that we charge it with encouraging the young to destroy life, we are placidly discussing whether life is worth preserving. But it is we who are the morbid exceptions. It is we who are the criminal class. This should be our great comfort. The vast mass of humanity, with their vast mass of idle books and idle words, have never doubted, and never will doubt, that courage is splendid, that fidelity is noble, that distressed ladies should be rescued and vanquished enemies spared. There are a large number of cultivated persons who doubt these maxims of daily life, just as there are a large number of persons who believe they are the Prince of Wales, and I am told that both classes of people are entertaining conversationalists. But the average man or boy writes daily in these great gaudy diaries of his soul, which we call penny dreadfuls, a plainer and better gospel than any of those iridescent ethical paradoxes that the fashionable change as often as their bonnets. It may be a very limited aim in morality to shoot a many-faced and fickle traitor, but at least it is a better aim than to be a many-faced and fickle traitor, which is a simple summary of a good many modern systems. So long as the coarse and thin texture of mere current popular romance is not touched by a paltry culture, it will never be vitally immoral. It is always on the side of life. The poor, the slaves who really stoop under the burden of life, have often been mad, scatterbrained, and cruel, but never hopeless. That is a class privilege, like cigars. Their driveling literature will always be a blood-and-thunder literature, as simple as the thunder of heaven and the blood of men. G.K. Chesterton, 1901 Well, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bibliophiles, and thanks for listening to our fresh recording of G.K. Chesterton's wonderful little essay, A Defense of Penny Dreadfuls, we include it today because we are continuing our little informal series on books about books, books about reading, books from people we think well of and respect on the subject of how to read, why to read, where to read, and what to read. And we thought Chesterton's contribution to this conversation would certainly be worth kicking around. Uh, what'd you guys think of it? I loved it. Did you? Yeah, I did. I didn't know that I was going to love it. I mean, I, you know what? Here's This is true. And I've you noticed because Emily has said this to me before. Shut up, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Emily has said that to you before. No, Emily's never said <laughs> yeah, shut up, mom, before, has. but it's coming. I know it's oh, coming. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> no, what she's noticed, and I didn't notice it myself about myself until she said it to me. She said, you don't like books very often the first time when you start reading them. <laughs> Do you remember saying that to me, Em? Uh, no. Well, so, every so now you and then. liar. You're a bald-faced liar. <laughs> you absolutely remember saying that to her. I think... I think it takes me a while to get into a book is what it is. Because since you said that to me, you said, I think it, I, maybe it wasn't a broad general statement, <laughs> but we were talking about a book and I said, I love that book. book. Yeah. And you said, you said you didn't like that book. And I said, well, that's because you asked me when I was about 20 pages in, you know, <laughs> and I realized that that's usually true of me, that when I start a book, it's very rare that I pick up a book and it immediately grabs me. And I think, oh, I love this book. I'm going to love this book. Every now and then it happens and incidentally it happened to me with a penny dreadful <laughs> really what what yeah. penny dreadful it's um well it's a modern penny dreadful a novel by tanya french called in the woods oh yeah you, i made you read it you remember? oh yeah absolutely I yeah do. that the was it the um i feel like it was the forward or or the introduction or something mm -hmm. like that. It was before the story really got off the ground. The very first chapter was so beautifully written. The, the It was just lyrical. It's prose, but it was lyrical prose, lovely imagery, and understated. It's a mystery novel, and, and the, the crime that takes place in that first passage is very understated so that it just has all the effect that you hope that it will. And then the rest of the book, she just kind of trills you along, and it turns to a, into a postmodernist nightmare. I mean, just by the end, I literally tossed the book across the room and thought, I'm so done with you. I'm done with you. <laughs> I was just annoyed. Hang on now. <laughs> this sounds like you're making the opposite point you were making a second ago. What, are, no. what is your conclusion here? No, no. Let me get back to the... See, oh, sorry. You gotta keep up. Try to keep I'm up. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm behind no, the curve. This has a point. What I was going to say is that I don't often jump on board in the first in the first chapter. Ah. It takes me a while to decide. But this was so a penny dreadful. If you do, you'll beware. Well, you're gonna... no, not necessarily. Okay, never mind. <laughs> never mind, you people. No, no, please go ahead. <laughs> We've pushed you too far. That's all. That's all I have to say. I'm done. Go ahead, Ian. I think Chesterton's, I think Chesterton's article is brilliant and timely, both. Brilliant and timely because this question of... Um, what to read, and in particular, maybe what to include in uh, reading lists for the little charges that we all are spending our lives teaching is so much on the lips of us and our uh, our colleagues. Mm -hmm. And Chesterton weighs in on this topic. And I got to confess that at first, I thought I knew where he was going. I was pretty sure I had him pegged there on that first page. And by the second page, he was saying something that indicted me as firmly as anyone else in the whole world which might be why Chesterton survives a paragon of literary virtue to this very day. Yeah. I, so I was not looking forward to reading Chesterton just because it's been a while since I've read any Chesterton and my take on people who read Chesterton has kind of evolved over the past couple of years. And I feel like a lot of times he gets wielded around like a broadsword so that I think of people who read Chesterton as the man walking down the street giving a haughty twirl to his mustaches at the thought of his superiority. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that is Chesterton. And so it was shocking and refreshing to read this and kind of had that all turned on its head for me. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he definitely is trying to separate himself or, and encourage us to indict the mustache twirlers, right? Yeah. For for what does he say? Despising vulgar compositions, but not ignoring them. He says we're in some danger of becoming petty in our study of pettiness. 
I love that sentence. Just stooping down to condemn something that the, the good readers of former ages would merely have ignored in a discussion of great literature, because obviously it isn't great literature, right? Okay, so but let's so obviously we've just had this piece read to us, right? We've had the the article read to us, but where does the term "penny dreadful" come from? Because I, um, I, I just want to I want to update it in my head, and maybe for those of our listeners who haven't heard the term before. Well, I can give you a definition of the term. Go, Missy, go. It's a comic or a storybook, a popular comic or storybook. Hmm. I, I don't know the etymology. Presumably sold of the term. for a penny at like yeah, late or, late nineteenth yeah, century Victorian England. Pulp fiction for boys, comic books or, or romance adventure stories. Um, the, the, the analog to 20th century America would be the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. We're talking late 19th century. So named because the original cost was one penny, of course. He calls them boys novelettes in this marvelous sentence. They may be, uh, the boys novelette may be ignorant in a literary sense, which is only like saying that the modern novel is ignorant in the chemical sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there were lots of these really, really great sentences in here. So, so he's coming to, to the defense then of a, a type of, of fiction that is lowbrow instead of highbrow. It's like Pulp Fiction potboilers. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So he's coming to the defense of it, right? Yeah. And... On what terms? What What is the basis on which he defends its worth? Well, he essentially says that, um, the, and this is the point that I, where I thought I had him pegged, where I thought I knew for sure what he was going to say the rest of the time. Literature and fiction are two entirely different things. Literature is a luxury. Fiction is a necessity. I love and this that. is the kind of thing that we say around here at Center for Lit all the time. We as human beings are spoken into being, and so we're creatures of language. And as we walk through our existences, we're the main character of our own story. And as we tell people about it, we are telling a story about our lives. So stories make sense to us. And fiction is a, is a part of the fabric of the world. Yeah. So far, so good, Chesterton. I'm with you here. And I love the line that he draws between literature and fiction because as classical educators, our whole emphasis is to make sure that nothing passes before the eyes of our students with our stamp of approval that is not literature in the highest possible sense right 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 and chesterton looks at us in that moment and says you are a mustache twirler right stop twirling your mustache and own up to your common humanity that you have way more in common with the boy in the gutter reading his comic books Mm -hmm. than you do with the high artists that have penned all these great classics Mm. i mean after his description of these two i hope we have more in common with the boy in the gutter reading these, right because he paints them as the only ones with any heart the ones who are actually reading for the right reason right yeah that was one of my questions that i wanted to bring up because one of his modes of defense is to say no one who reads about um Robin Hood is going to become a thief. It's because that's a different life than he leads, not because he wants to lead that life. One of my favorite sentences was, it might at least cross our minds that for whatever other reason the Aaron boys read the Red Revenge, it really is not because he is dripping with the gore of his own friends. (laughs) (laughs) I have tried to make that point before and nowhere near as good as that. I mean, that's so well said. Whatever other reason you have for reading a a novel about murder and death, it's not because you want to be a murderer. I love it. It's not going to like lead them down a non-virtuous path. Well, and let's be clear. The accusation that he's defending these Penny Dreadfolds against is that it will do just that. Right. Right. Reading things that do not have literary merit. Corrupt the youth. Perhaps 
virtuous things to say about the world mm-hmm. will in fact take all of these little boys and make of them little criminals. Well, that was actually my question because there's, yes, there's that on the other hand, and he's like calling that out. But then he also turns to modern literature, actual highbrow artistic literature of his day and talks about how it encourages us to doubt and leaves us hopeless, which is a class privilege like cigars, he says. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering, is is he, by encouraging the penny dreadful, also uh, trying to get us to step away from reading Hemingway, you know? I, I mean, not that that's... Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Like I see what you're saying. I, that's a good. Th- that's a good point. I don't think he would. I don't think he's going so far as to, as to condemn art, but I, I think the title is better. Is more specific. He's he's going so far as to defend story, mm-hmm. and and that's not the same thing as condemning art. He does condemn some art, um, uh, and that may be where the, the the heart of your question is, Emily. But but I think his main point is to is to defend story that that doesn't rise to the level of art. By by virtue of the fact that it it bespeaks of the the thing that makes people the most human, uh, that last sentence, um, their driveling literature, the literature of these penny drivels, will always be a blood and thunder literature, as simple as the thunder of heaven and the blood of men. It may not be art, it may not be literature properly speaking, but there's something honest and good about it. I think his his essay is a defense rather than a condemnation. What, what, what do you guys think about that? Is that oversimplified? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think what he's saying in this part is that um, he's noticing a hypocrisy in the reason that they denounce these penny dreadfuls, right? He's saying, you denounce these penny dreadfuls because of their immorality and all of their baseness and lewdness and licentiousness and so on and so forth. And he says, you guys are hypocrites because these works that you hold up as worthy of time and energy and thought and reading are um, more more these things than any of those penny dreadfuls ever pretended to be, you know? I, I thought it was, um, wow, the, the little section about, um, oh, here, where is it? Mm. If the authors and publishers of Deadshot and such remarkable works were suddenly to make a raid upon the educated class, were to take down the names of every man, however distinguished, who has caught at university extension lecture, were to confiscate all our novels and warn us all to correct our lives, we should be seriously annoyed. Yet, they have far more right to do so than we, for they, with all their idiocy, are normal, and we are abnormal. It is the modern literature of the educated, not of the uneducated, which is avowedly and aggressively criminal. Books recommending profligacy and pessimism, at which the high-souled errand boy would shudder, lie upon all our drawing-room tables. If the dirtiest old owner of the dirtiest old bookstall in Whitechapel dared to display works really recommending polygamy or suicide, his stock would be seized by the police. These things are our luxuries. Yeah, and and I think that, that Emily, your comment about Hemingway in this connection, um, I don't think he if he had lived long enough to know Hemingway, would have put Hemingway in the category of books on that coffee table. Because in his own way, Hemingway, and indeed I think all of his compatriots in the modern period, would have been in the in the category that Chesterton mentions a few lines later when he says, the vast mass of humanity with their vast mass of idle books and idle words have never doubted and never will doubt that courage is splendid, that fidelity is noble, that distressed ladies should be rescued and vanquished enemies spared. I don't think the the modernists of the 20th century even strayed from those truisms as he calls them. Well, what he's doing is condemning he's condemning a 
a new kind of um, a new kind of literature emerging that doubts all of the truisms that are in that list. Well, and more than that, I really do think it's the hypocrisy that he's going on about here. It's not whether he thinks that we should read those books or we shouldn't. He's dealing with other people's opinions about whether we should or we shouldn't read those books. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, look, you got you to judge by the same measure here. Mm-hmm. If you're going to denounce the Penny Dreadfuls, then you also have to denounce all of this art that's on your tables and that you recommend and imbibe in yourself. So, so, so in your view, it's you know, just, get this out is... And, and the subtle, the subtle uh, criticism that he's offering is that we aren't denouncing them because of their moral content or lack thereof. We're denouncing them because they don't add to our image to have on our coffee table. Right. Mm-hmm. I We're think denouncing that's them really because we, they smack of triviality instead of, of weight and moment. Yeah. Which is exactly the kind of criticism that I think um, I myself and many of my fellows deserve in this particular capacity. When we elevate Homer because he's Homer over writings from our own era that may actually smack more of truth than Homer, we are doing that. We are saying, well, we can fall back on this particular story because it is a classic, capital C, capital L, et cetera, and this other one doesn't deserve recognition as a work worthy of reading because it is trivial, or at least it hasn't proven itself untrivial yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, and Emily, I think you had a response. Well, yeah, that's, I, I just wanted to get to that because on first pass through, it can kind of seem like he's being contradictory that he's saying on the one hand, the penny dreadfuls won't make our boys want to be thieves and robbers. And it, it isn't based on being called up to particular actions that this whole reading thing is about. And then turn to the modern literature and say, but it is about matters of faith and doubt. And that is when it gets serious. And so it really is about only reading what's true. Does that make sense? That, yeah, I see what you're saying. I don't know that. I don't think that's what he's saying either, but like, I just wanted to talk about it. Yeah. I think, and I think mom's comment to that effect, it might be an answer because what he's doing in that moment is saying you hypocrite. Yeah. And, he, and the I mean, hypocrisy is really the point. And the, the way that he puts it, um, with the uh, with a hypocrisy so ludicrous as to be almost unparalleled in history, we rate the gutter boys for their immorality at the very time that we are discussing with equivocal German professors where the morality is valid at all. He doesn't, in that sentence, really say that discussing where the mor- morality is valid at all is is negative. Although he certainly does. The point is that it's hypocritical. The the well, condemnation of the penny dreadful is therefore hypocritical. And isn't that what he's on about? I mean, in all of his essays, the main thing he's interested in is not so much literary criticism as it is cultural criticism. Yeah. And he's going right to the heart of the culture here. He's saying, "You pretentious people, uh, you're holding you're holding these penny dreadfuls hostage, and you're denouncing all these people that are reading them and calling it immoral at the same time that you're saying that there is no God and that they're." there therefore can be no morality. You're, you're talking about whether or not this is a material world and there's any objective truth, but at the same time, you're going to hold these kids hostage and say they can't read a penny dreadful because it's immoral. You can't have it both ways, folks. Yeah. This is what he's saying. Yeah, I think you're right about that. 
Go ahead. The sentence I think it's really good is um, a paragraph earlier. In this matter, as in all such matters, we lose our bearings entirely by speaking of the lower classes when we mean humanity minus ourselves. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty right to the point, isn't it? <laughs> and he, this trivial romantic literature is not especially plebeian. It is simply human. Mm-hmm. The philanthropist can never forget classes and callings. He says with a modest swagger, this is just, this is, this is acid. Listen to this. He says with a modest swagger, I have invited 25 factory hands to tea. If he said, I have invited 25 chartered accountants to tea, everyone would see the humor of so simple a classification. If that's not an indictment of the way that we do intellectualism as human beings, I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in a way, he one aspect of his defense of the penny dreadful, and I think it's important for us to substitute as we're talking about this 120 years later, uh, substitute, you know, lowbrow fiction or pulp fiction or, or you know, um, YA serials or whatever, you know, that some sort of category like that. The, the one angle of his defense is that they are, they're not saying anything complicated. They're built on truisms. And he says they express the sanguine and heroic truisms on which civilization is built. And then makes this really interesting comment. If civilization is not built on truisms, it's not built at all. Mm-hmm. Did you, you guys know that, that? Remember that sentence where mm-hmm. he says, there could be no safety for a society in which the remark by the chief justice that murder was wrong was regarded as original? <laughs> yeah. Right? It has to be self-evident. Somebody has to repeat the self-evident truths. And in so much as this lowbrow literature does that, he defends it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved his idea that um, sentiment, you know, most of these books, we, we denounce them because of sentimentalism in addition yeah. to their Sent- vulgarity, right? right? Um, base sentimentalism. And certainly there is sentimentalism in them. But he says ordinary men will always be sentimentalists. For a sentimentalist is simply a man who has feelings and does not trouble to invent a new way of expressing them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was lovely. That's, um, I thought of Dickens in that connection, although I'm sure Chesterton had a high opinion of Dickens, but Dickens often gets criticized for being sentimental. And I thought that um, if he had been around, he would have said, thank you, GK. I appreciate it very much, you yeah. saying that. Mm-hmm. All I am is a man with feelings who hadn't taken the time to express them in some newfangled way. Mm-hmm. So, Ian, you've already sort of um, sort of hedged toward a way that this this very old argument about a time far removed from our own in some ways is relevant to you as a reader. Can we talk about that for a minute? I mean, is this, is this defense, is this line of argument relevant to our world in some other ways? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I, I'm, I'm glad for another chance to try putting that because I don't think I put it particularly well last time and maybe even implied some things I don't think. (laughs) Well, heavens don't do that. Hazard of being uh verbal, especially in public. Um, <laughs> but no, I think the the criticism that I hear underneath that line I read earlier, when he talks about losing our bearings by speaking of the lower classes, when we mean humanity minus ourselves, um, I think is a, is a pretty stout rubric by which to evaluate how we decide what's a classic and what isn't. I think the idea that we, he's suggesting that we make those kinds of decisions based on the manner of person we imagine ourselves to be or their manner of person we prefer that we were. Uh, Who we want to um, associate with, you mean? Yeah. Right. We want to associate with ideas that have been thoroughly vetted. Mm-hmm. We want to associate with works that are sufficiently intellectually high, yeah. and especially when we are trying to 
pursue the calling that we have. And it's a high one, I think, of being educators. We want to pursue that calling with the best possible tools available to us. I don't think that impulse is a wrong one whatsoever. But everybody is going to come down a little bit differently on what works are essential. And it's tempting to drag that conversation all the way up into the clouds and make it a philosophical one and say, qualitatively, a work that is old is better than a work that is new. And that is not a supportable statement. You can't say that. If we're actually going to be honest intellectuals, the works that we teach have to be taught for their constituent elements. They have to be taught for the ideas present in them. They have to be taught for the observations that the author is making. And there are authors alive and working now who are making profound observations. And to say that they won't survive the, the years is unsupportable. But yet we might be conflating things just a little, though, because he's not talking about current works versus classics. He's talking about penny dreadfuls versus art. I understand that. I absolutely understand that. And I'm taking his idea and running with it a little bit because I think the question is exactly the same. How are we going to decide what to read? The guy that he's indicting in this article is deciding what to read based on which one is higher and better. And I think that as educators, we have a similar set of decisions to make. And it's very safe to say, well, we'll choose the ones that are old. I think that's, I think it's a little different though, don't you, Ian? Because he's talking about what to read and we're talking about what to teach. Okay, that's fair. I'll read more broadly and allow my children to read more broadly than I will study. Some books are, are entertaining and worth my read, but not all of them are going to be worth my study. That goes back to that, to that earlier sentence where he made a distinction between literature and fiction, and he made mm-hmm. it in such a great way that I, that I think it, that might be a good jumping off place for this point that you're making, Missy. When you, and, and I think, Ian, you read this. Literature and fiction are two entirely different things. Literature is a luxury, fiction a necessity. And then he goes on to say, a work of art can hardly be too short, for its climax is its merit. A story can never be too long, for its conclusion is merely to be deplored, like the last halfpenny or the last pipelight. I mean, he makes a qualitative distinction of form, even, between literature slash art and and fiction. Yeah, and length. And so while the increase of artistic conscience tends in more ambitious works to brevity and impressionism, voluminous industry still marks the producer of the true romantic trash. Right. And that's a <laughs> that's a compliment, right? True yes. romantic trash. <laughs> so is that does that get at the distinction you're making, Missy, between what to read, which yes. presumably should include both literature and fiction, and what to teach, which might better be focused on literature? Is that what you're yeah, I, you know, I just, I hear him echoing Lewis in this. I, I think they would have agreed about this whole issue. And Lewis talks about the fact that some books are really worth digesting. You, you know, they, they take a long time to digest. And others are like candy. You just pop them and move on, you know? <laughs> I, I think that these particular stories that he's talking about, you just devour them. And certainly you did this as a child. Any, anybody who, who loved reading when they were growing up did this. Talk about Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. We could probably throw in He Who Should Not Be Named in that series of, in our present day, right? <laughs> Hank uh, the Cow Dog? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we'll call him Hank the Cow Dog, but you know who I mean. I was talking about Hank the Cow Dog, actually. Oh, you were, okay. And, you know, it, the jury's out on whether or not that will truly end up being a classic. Maybe it will. But it falls in the same category as, as uh, uh, the other books I'm talking about, where we just plow through and we want the next one and the next one and the next one, you know? We cannot be satiated. <laughs> so how do you think Chesterton's argument applies today, Missy? 
Okay, first of all, I think it's pertinent to our listeners because it puts its finger on a fear that a lot of parents who are homeschooling have about um, whether or not they should allow their children to read these kinds of books. Are they doing violence to their children's imagination by letting them engage in or imbibe in these series books, um, these penny dreadfuls? Should, should they be able to read comic books and things like that? And I think he, he kind of puts those fears at rest for me. You know, that's kind of, that's more kind of what I was trying to point to is the idea that we choose to hand our kids Homer instead of the book they're interested in Yeah, for the same set of reasons that Chesterton's pointing to right here. I mean, I obviously don't agree that we should be um, doing in-depth literary studies of the Daredevil comics, but right. that's not really what I was trying to say. What, okay. I, what I was trying <laughs> to say is something more along the lines of Chesterton is pointing at you and saying, you as a human being have a membership in a particular society and thank God it's a low one. Storytellers. Common storytellers. Yeah. So why don't we all participate in that low society together? Which, by and the way, Homer's, Homer was participating in that low society for as well. His day. As an oral storyteller yes. in his day. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's what I take. What I hear you saying, Ian, is that the underlying issue at heart here is that the reading endeavor, however that expresses itself, whether just in our leisure hours or honestly in our teaching or in what we choose to to name as classics like none of that should ever touch the motivation of building up our own identity and ego right and it should never be in reference to how we want our fellows to think of us ah uh, well mm-hmm. said mm-hmm. well said by the way when you first started that sentence i thought you were reading from chesterton it was beautiful Congratulations. I, when you started well, in, I thought, wait a minute, well, which paragraph indeed. is she going to? <laughs> uh, I love the, um, I, I want to go back. This didn't get quite enough um, attention from my perspective. That sentence that I read about how the uh, the glory of literature, a work of art can hardly be too short for its climax is its merit. A story can never be too long for its conclusion is merely to be deplored. That's actually a statement of, of literary criticism. At least it, it tends toward it. Right? It's a statement about form and structure, and it distinguishes between high literature and low fiction formally and structurally. I don't know if that's, if that's an idea that's applicable to today. Maybe, that, maybe that, that's mirrored in the fact that the, that the YA pulp fiction phenomenon um, is a series instead of a single novel. You know, the great American novel is often a single work, but what we've got is Percy Jackson out to the horizon of the setting sun. To the right? end of time. Yeah. And, and Chesterton talks about that too, that Robin Hood was never originally conceived to have an end. That story is supposed to go on forever and ever and ever because it consistently feeds that eternal need to imagine an ideal world. Right? I, oh, I yeah, think I agree with that. I I'm really do. I'm always admit. looking for this too, aren't you? Um, that experience that you had as a kid of picking up a story and getting lost in it. And then when you come to the last page thinking, no, yeah, you deplore it. I want it to go on forever. I'm always looking for that. And I think that all good literature, whether it's a penny dreadful or actual art ought to contain this element. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally do. It seems like, though, that what Cheston is suggesting is that that a, a high work of art has, a, as part of what it does, the the leaving you wanting more. Mm. That's part of what, what art is for. But story is for something else. It's for continually scratching that itch and continually allowing that participation in in what it means to be human. So maybe what he's saying is that not all literature that is art is also story. 
Yeah, and maybe, and certainly not the other way around. Yeah. Fair enough, fair right, enough. That it's not literature and shouldn't be evaluated by the by the high standard that literature is evaluated by. I love this, though. He, Chesterton is great, I think, in part, because he is willing to indulge in a little good-natured and perhaps even uh, righteous hyperbole. Yes. Oh, for but, sure. Get this. There are a large number of cultivated persons who doubt these maxims of daily life, just as there are a large number of persons who believe they are the Prince of Wales. And I am told that both classes of people are entertaining conversationalists. <laughs> but the average man or boy writes daily in these great gaudy diaries of his soul, which we call penny dreadfuls, a plainer and better gospel than any of those iridescent ethical paradoxes that the fashionable change as often as their bonnets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mic drop. Just, that's a hundred twenty year old mic drop right there. He just skewers this culture, and I, you know, you asked, should we still read this today? Is it still relevant? I think the other reason it's still relevant is because our culture hasn't. Um, well, it's more like this than even his was. Maybe, in my opinion, maybe in this last section where you started, um, you started reading, and with a hypocrisy so ludicrous as to be almost unparalleled in history, we rate the gutter boys for their immorality at the very tam- same time that we are discussing with equivocal German professors whether morality is valid at all. And at the very instant that we curse the penny dreadful for encouraging thefts upon property, we canvass the proposition that all property is theft. And at the very instant we accuse it quite unjustly of lubricity and indecency, we are cheerfully reading philosophies which glory in lubricity and indecency. And at the very instant that we charge it with encouraging the young to destroy life, we are placidly discussing whether life is worth preserving. I mean, I get... He may have been writing about the 20th century, but this is true in the 21st century, is it not? It would be if I knew what lubricity meant. Yes. (laughs) I Googled that word. What did you you find, Emily? It's like lubricant. It's like a loose. Uh, Looseness. You guys are both better intellectuals than me. I read that word and thought, whew, and move on. (laughs) Also, I think, yes, it, it does speak to the kind of literature that's popular in our world at large but I think in particular in our niche or our niche or whatever um, (laughs) I want to go back to what Ian was saying because I don't think he's wrong because I think there there is a tendency to wield Homer like a German philosopher like 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 Chesterton's German philosopher like we tend to wield Homer and the same argument applies I mean, look at the morality of Homer. Mm-hmm. You have slaughtering all over the place, blood and gore. Pillaging, raping, <laughs> all sorts of things. Yeah, and um, I, yeah, I just think it applies more specifically to our own circles as well, well and, and not just like pointing the finger at the postmodern world. <laughs> right. Interesting. And well, and the other thing is I think in that, in that regard, it is a, um, this article could be a, a huge weight off of one's shoulders as an earnest teacher and an earnest or an earnest parent, um, because you're both, you're, you're wearing more than one hat, right? You're not just uh, an educator. You are also furnishing your child's soul. And that is apparent to you all the time. Yeah. And buddy, that's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And so why wouldn't you take great pains that Homer is the only, only furniture for your child's soul, or at least that Homer and his fellows, the other great authors of the Western tradition are the only things that furnish your child's soul. I, I identify with, the parent who comes to us and says, what about these penny dreadfuls? This is all my kid wants to read. Am I in deep doo-doo here? Right. And what Chesterton says is, nope, you're not. You're just a man. You're just fine. Yeah. Yeah. 
You're just a sentimental person. man with, with blood and thunder in your veins. That's and you right. could hardly be otherwise. It does it beautifully makes it really easy to wrap our heads around, I think. Thus, Chesterton, one of the great gifts of God to the Western tradition. He goes even further and says that it should be a comfort to us that they desire these sorts of things, um, that we are the ones, he says, who are the criminals, we who are the morbid exceptions. This should be our great comfort. The vast mass of humanity with their vast mass of idle books and idle words have never doubted and never will doubt that courage is splendid, that fidelity is noble, that distressed ladies should be rescued and vanquished enemies spared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I think that he, he does sound a warning gong, though, and maybe we could close with this. He does sound a warning gong with this conditional statement towards the end in that paragraph that you're reading, Missy. So long, he says, as the coarse and thin texture of mere current popular literature is not touched by a paltry culture, it will never be vitally immoral. And that brings up the question in my mind, whether today's popular literature, whether today's low stratum of boys' novelettes has been touched by a paltry culture. In a way that 19th century In a way that late 19th century, century, early 20th century popular literature had not. Mm -hmm. And that's a question maybe for us to think about as we go forward, because the the implication of of Chesterton's sentence is, if it has been touched by paltry culture, then it might be vitally immoral too. He's laying that kind of literature aside in the same way that Lewis lays aside pornography. Probably something along those lines, yeah. We're not talking about that. Right, right. Yeah, and he's and he's I think has a fair bit of faith that you'll instinctively know the difference. Also, I think so. That and if you pass your eyes over literature of that second kind, the vitally damaged kind, yes. that you'll know. Yeah, which and I think is I think that's fair to say. I think it is. Yeah, There's this I think, thing called a conscience. You can tell that Frank and Joe Hardy aren't uh, touched by a paltry and culture, Chet. and their chum Chet Morton. Or the boxcar Who skillfully guided his speedboat through the choppy no, no, waves. Chet, Chet's not skillful. Chet is never skillful. He's adorable. It's Nancy Drew who skillfully yes. guides her motor vehicle. That's yes, right. Her she roadster. She skillfully Drew who guides her roadster. Ah, <laughs> uh, behold, the penny dreadful of our day. <laughs> guys, thank you. That was really fun. I appreciate you guys uh, being as open and honest and quick with your words and thoughts as always. Uh, we're going to put this up in the Pelican Society. We're going to put it up on the iTunes and on the Stitcher and on the interwebs and see all the webs <laughs> and invite you all to go listen to it. I'm pretty sources. soon going to be fired from my MC <laughs> duties by my daughter-in-law, who's right now completely rolling her eyes. Laughing at us. But I do want to thank you all for joining us for another episode of Bibliophiles. We'll be back again soon with an additional one, and we're looking forward to it already. Come by the website and visit, see what else we're doing for readers and teachers and thinkers, centerforlit.com, pelicansociety.com, and iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks for coming, everyone. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. (laughs) That was lame, oh my gosh. You said Stitcher like three times. I don't even know what Stitcher is. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.